0: Hello, and welcome back to The Dictator's Podcast. Um, I wanted to apologize for the unexpectedly long delay. Um, I recently started a new job, so there's been some adjusting that I had to do to my schedule. But we're back, um, and we should be back on track for a a new episode again in two weeks. Um, And we'll hope to keep more to the established schedule for this podcast going forward. So thank you for being patient with me, and let's get started. I left off last week with Augusto Pinochet consolidating his control over Chile and becoming the undisputed leader of the new regime, sidelining the other members of the junta and appointing himself president of Chile. This week, we're going to be bouncing around a bit, both chronologically and geographically, as I go over some of the effects of the new Pinochet regime throughout Latin America and the world. One thing to note, and I promise that we'll go into this in more detail in the next episode, is that the Pinochet regime made some radical changes to their economic policy. They expanded foreign investment, made extensive concessions to foreign firms, paid reparations to U.S. copper mines, and adopted a wide-ranging basket of free market reforms that were appealing both to foreign investors and to the United States government under Nixon and Ford. In the early years of the regime, Washington was enthusiastic about the new government, and. Their initial reluctance to openly support it, until the Junta government was recognized by other countries, was not about any kind of ambivalence, so much as it was about a desire not to be perceived as having been involved in the coup directly. And a State Department official, speaking to the New York Times, summarized this very clearly by saying, the goal was to, quote, glide in with relations and not be the first and not last so that people wouldn't infer any special meaning." Uh, to U.S. recognition of the the Pinochet regime. Both behind the scenes and publicly, Washington was an ally of Pinochet, and that alliance paid dividends in dollar amounts. The Inter-American Development Bank, or IDB, had provided loans to the Allende regime, totaling about $11.6 million in the first three years of his presidency. Now, by contrast, in the first three years of the Pinochet regime, the IDB provided Chile with around $238 million. The World Bank had provided no loans to Allende, but provided around $66.5 million from 1974 to 1976. When the Chilean ambassador explained to Will Rogers, the U.S. Assistant Secretary for Inter-American Relations, that they were experiencing delays receiving payments from the World Bank, Rogers replied that they should have no problem and that the U.S. was quote leaning hard on that bureaucracy. The U.S. also spearheaded debt renegotiations in the Paris Club, saving Chile hundreds of millions of dollars in debt payments. Of course, the U.S. agreed to reschedule around 100 million dollars of Chilean debt held by U.S. banks. The U.S. also liberalized its trade in arms with Chile, and during the early Pinochet years, Chile became the fifth largest purchaser of US weapons, and that's a figure that is not per capita, that is total dollars worth of weapons. But Pinochet's first priority was never maintaining strong international relations. His first priority was always consolidating his internal control over Chile, and time and again, his internal repression would cause diplomatic incidents. One of the first of these began the day of the coup in 1973, While the attacks were mostly aimed at La Moneda, troops were also sent to attack the Cuban embassy. Swedish ambassador Harald Edelstam, and apologies if I'm pronouncing that wrong, confronted the troops attacking the Cuban embassy and pointed out that since embassies are foreign territory, this was an act of war against a foreign country. He brought the Cubans out from the embassy, brought them to the Swedish embassy, and then out of the country. For the next 18 years, the Cuban Embassy in Santiago remained under the protecting power of the nation of Sweden. So this is where I'm going to take a moment to talk about the man who built the system of repression in Chile, and whose actions would help to alienate Chile from the rest of the world. Juan Manuel Guillermo Mamo Contreras Sepúlveda, or, as I'm going to call him here, Contreras, was a military engineer, and had studied under Pinochet in the military academy. At the time of the coup, he was in charge of the military presence in the port city of San Antonio, about an hour and a half by car from Santiago. As you may remember from episode two, under the coup, Pinochet's first priority was reasserting control over army officers who had prosecuted the crackdown on leftists with insufficient zeal. Now, Manuel Contreras was notably not one of those officers. He immediately converted the engineering barracks, into an improvised concentration camp called Tejas Verdes, one of the most notorious sites of repression in the post-coup period, and I'll provide a link in the show notes to the full text of an influential diary of one of the prisoners who was kept there. Under the direction of Manuel Contreras, Tejas Verdes was an example of the kind of repression that Pinochet wanted to see exercised throughout Chile. In conversations with Pinochet, Contreras convinced him that the new regime needed a centralized intelligence service, both to gather information about leftist activity in Chile, and to perpetrate covert action against communism. Contreras, having proven his commitment and unflinching anti-communism at Tejas Verdes, convinced Pinochet that he was the man to lead this new organization, and the Dina was born. While it was initially a service within the army, in 1974, the Junta issued a decree establishing the Dirección de Inteligencia Nacional as its own independent agency, and giving it authority to gather information for planning and policy. They also offered three additional secret decrees, giving the Dina sweeping powers, including the detention of suspects, and the ability to demand cooperation and assistance from any other public agency. So, in effect, the DINA's authority over anything even tangentially related to national security was absolute. All other agencies answered to the DINA, the DINA answered to Contreras, and Contreras answered to Pinochet. The new DINA would be based out of Tejas Verdes, and recruited primarily from the ranks of the army. It was supported substantially by the U.S. CIA, and this will be a running theme, but the level of CIA involvement in the DINA is disputed. To me, the evidence is pretty strong that the CIA was deeply and heavily involved in the creation and design of the DINA from the beginning. It's undisputed that Contreras had close ties and repeated meetings with Vernon Walters, the deputy director of the CIA, before, during, and after the creation of the DINA. In March of 1974, the CIA sent eight officers to help out with the DINA, and those officers were expected to have permanent leadership positions within the organization. But Pinochet later rejected this idea as it would undermine the independence of the Chilean intelligence. In 2000, the CIA reported to Congress that Contreras himself was listed as a CIA asset, received unspecified personal payments for his services to the CIA, and maintained Dina bank accounts in Washington. After the coup, the CIA was scaling back its overt public involvement in Chile, both in order to lend the Junta a veneer of legitimacy and to distance itself from the human rights abuses that were already piling up in the weeks after the coup. And you can read some pretty impressively frank analysis about the decision to work with the Dina and Contreras in particular in a memo that I'll link to in the show notes. So as it was publicly backing away from Pinochet, it was convertly trying to get as close as possible to Contreras in order to maintain control over the new regime. So here's where we are. Manuel Contreras has gathered several hundred men under his personal command. They have a new privileged position that they owe solely to him as they were selected by him. They have training and resources from the United States and an official carte blanche from Pinochet to prosecute a war against Marxism. They operate in secret and they answer to no one. They are led by a man who is wholly committed to his ideological crusade. So this is a pretty straightforward recipe for brutality, and that's pretty much exactly what Contreras is cooking up. Just a little side note, the emblem of the Dina was an iron gauntlet clenched into a fist. So yeah, not the most subtle symbolism right there. And if I can be forgiven for a brief digression, the structure of the Dina was remarkably rigid and hierarchical. The Dina was divided into four departments, administration, logistics, archives and documentation, and operations. The Department of Archives and Documentation would be critical to bolstering the influence of the Dina with Pinochet, as their files gave Pinochet extensive information that could be used to neutralize his political opposition, both on the left and on the right. But the bulk of the terror was perpetrated by the operations department. Operations was divided into three brigades. The main brigade responsible for the terrorization of Santiago was called the Metropolitan Intelligence Brigade. The brigade was divided into special groups, each of which had a different leftist group to target. One was targeted to destroy the Mir, one was assigned to destroy the Communist Party, and one was assigned to destroy the Socialist Party. Now, each special group was then subdivided into five-man, quote, action teams that would conduct the actual operations. And this nested hierarchy was modeled after the hierarchies of the CIA and of the Brazilian intelligence service, Um, and it allowed the organizations to both obscure the origins of specific orders and to allow each unit to provide with a degree of autonomy, to provide the higher-ups with a level of plausible deniability. The Dina would rapidly become the most feared organization in Chile, and its ranks were remarkably disciplined. Only one or two people ever defected out of the Dina or spoke up about its activities from the inside. Contreras built this discipline using the same basket of techniques that we'll see throughout history in groups like this. New members were forced to commit horrific crimes and were bound together by their shared guilt and complicity. They lived, worked, ate, and slept in isolation and secrecy. They were fed a constant stream of ideological dogma. For years, the Dino would operate by abducting people, dragging their victims out to some black site or another, torturing them, raping them, abusing them psychologically. Sometimes the victims did in fact give them information about leftists, and many victims of the Dino were forced to become double agents gathering information about other leftists in Chile. Others, many others, were simply murdered, and their bodies were rarely recovered. Families spent years searching for remains or information about the whereabouts of their loved ones, and the Dina never provided any answers. Most of the time, this happened at night. The Dina would storm into houses to abduct their victims. But sometimes this happened during the day, in front of witnesses. And as the power and terror of the Dina grew, so did the personal power and importance of Manuel Contreras. He was not only staunchly anti-communist, but he also had a prominent puritanical streak, and at least according to a nation of enemies, after the coup, he ordered soldiers to shave the heads of men with long hair, and to arrest couples who were caught kissing in public. The secrecy of the Dina, and the all-encompassing nature of its mandate and authority, And the capricious eccentricity of its leader helped to magnify the fear that the Dina created in the populace of Chile. Contreras also developed a deep personal bond with Pinochet. Many of the civilian leadership within the Pinochet regime feared the growing influence of Contreras. As the civilian leadership tried to steer the course of the regime toward constitutional government, albeit under the hand of the new president, Contreras was entrenching the Dina as a permanent fixture in what he envisioned as a permanent police state in Chile. The Dina did not reserve its tactics for leftists. Throughout the regime, the Dina actively had informants, spies, wiretapping operations in place not only in factories and community groups, but in the military and in all branches of civilian government. And predictably, all of the Dina's most outspoken opponents within the government were purged, reassigned, or outright denounced as being in league with the leftists. a tactic that not only removed political opponents from of Manuel Contreras but bolstered the claim that political repression was justified because of a vast conspiracy of leftist sympathizers so th- this force is is enormous and it begin begins to take control over Chile. But there is resistance to it, and while the Dina had immense power over all of the institutions in Chile, their targets could be effectively sheltered by foreign embassies. So for that reason, the Dina kept a very close watch on all foreign embassies in Chile, and they tried to prevent people from seeking refuge. But there were some people who succeeded, some members of the religious community, especially the Catholic Archbishopric of Santiago, actively helped fugitives escape to the embassies, and they helped to supply the growing makeshift refugee camps there with food and provisions after the coup. One such figure, a Lutheran bishop named Helmut Friends, and again I'm probably mispronouncing that, helped found a human rights organization called the Comité de Cooperación para la Paz in Chile. On a more direct level, he concocted a scheme to smuggle refugees into the embassies by delivering loads of provisions accompanied by aides who were dressed up as priests. He would deliver the food with the aides and then he would leave alone and the disguised refugees would stay safe in the embassies. But he faced opposition both from within the Lutheran church and from the regime. A pro-Pinochet newspaper began collecting signatures from Lutherans in Chile, demanding that he be expelled from the country. And after claiming that they would not interfere with the activities of the church, the Pinochet regime ordered his expulsion from Chile in 1975, and the committee that he founded was dissolved. It's also worth noting here that this was another source of diplomatic tensions in Chile. Other nations were forced into an immediate reaction to the human rights abuses in Chile by the presence of refugees in their embassies. Countries like Mexico couldn't remain vaguely neutral toward the regime. They had to either help extricate dozens of refugees from their embassies or turn their backs on them. Mexico, for one, cancelled all diplomatic relations and trade deals with Chile after securing safe passage for all of the Chileans now stationed in their embassy. In 1976, Contreras took steps to wildly expand the remit of the already immensely powerful Dina. The Dina took over a number of government-owned or seized import-export firms, and it used the proceeds from these lucrative businesses to fund its operations. This allowed Contreras to remove one of the final remaining checks on his power, the power of the purse. As the Dina became more self-funded, the power of the civilian government was circumscribed. Contreras's growing power and independence from the regime began to give misgivings not only to the civilian government of Chile, but also to Pinochet himself. Now, a source within the junta was quoted in a U.S. Defense Department briefing as saying, quote, There are three sources of power in Chile, Pinochet, God, and Dina. Around this time, Contreras began to look beyond the borders of Chile, and he was the originator of what was called Plan Condor, or later, Operation Condor. Condor was envisioned as an intergovernmental cooperative entity designed to eliminate leftists throughout Latin America. If the governments of Latin America combined forces to create a kind of anti-communist interpol, leftists fleeing Chile would have no sanctuary to find. While the primary collaborators were other right-leaning Latin American governments, Contreras also approached far-right and neo-fascist organizations in the United States, Italy, and throughout Europe. Now again, it's almost certain that the CIA played a prominent role in the establishment of Operation Condor. This organization shared intelligence on leftist activity throughout Latin America, and though it is disputed by some sources, the evidence is strong that multiple Condor agencies conspired in a number of extrajudicial killings and assassinations throughout Latin America. The United States intelligence agencies were aware of this, and though they stopped short of condoning assassinations, they were actively supportive of Operation Condor. In addition to these lower-profile murders of leftist distance throughout Latin America, a handful of high-profile attacks begun to draw international outrage against Plan Condor, the Dina, and Contreras in particular. In 1974, Argentine officers in Buenos Aires had executed the assassination of General Carlos Prats and his wife, almost certainly upon the orders of the Dina. And if you'll recall, Carlos Prats was Pinochet's immediate predecessor, who had been a staunch constitutionalist general and had been supportive of the civilian government of Chile and critical of the new Pinochet regime. In late 1975, an Italian fascist group shot Bernardo Leighton and his wife in Rome, again allegedly under orders from the Dina. Though both ultimately survived this shooting, they were badly injured. One of the highest profile agents of the Dina, operating internationally, was an American citizen, and this bit is a bit squidgy. Some sources cite him as a former CIA agent, and some just describe him as connected with the cia in any case his name was michael vernon townley and according to a u.s federal prosecutor townley was involved in the attempted bombing of a conference of exiles in mexico in 1975. it's also worth noting that townley is alleged to have been responsible for the death of poet pablo neruda as of october 20th of this year a week ago as of the recording. A team of international forensic experts announced that they could not accept that Neruda was in an imminent situation of death when he entered the hospital where he died. His chauffeur has maintained that a team of DINA operatives injected poison into his stomach. Um, There isn't yet any way to confirm or refute this claim until further analysis that is expected to come out next year. Finally... The single highest-profile assassination perpetrated by the Dina internationally was the murder of Orlando Letelier. And I want to mention that I'm not going to be able to do justice to the nuances and complications of the story here. There have been several books published on the subject. Letelier was a former foreign minister of Chile, and he had fled Chile to the United States, where he was an outspoken opponent of the Pinochet regime and a human rights activist. Michael Vernon Townley built a bomb using a combination of TNT and C-4 explosives and rigged a remote detonating device using a pager. Townley worked with a number of right-wing Cuban nationals, and on September 19th, 1976, he attached a bomb to Letelier's car, scouted out the route that Letelier traveled from home to work, and selected a spot on Sheridan's Circle on Embassy Row in Washington, D.C., Two days later, on September 21st, Townley's conspirators detonated the bomb, killing both Orlando Letelier and a passenger named Ronnie Moffat. Moffat's husband, who was also in the car, survived the blast. Until the September 11th attacks in New York, the assassination of Orlando Letelier was widely considered to be the highest profile act of foreign terrorism in the United States. Ultimately, The Latelier assassination was an overreach for Contreras and the Dina. And I want to take a moment to mention that not only was this an awful crime, it was also incredibly foolish. Up until this point, the United States had been one of Chile's only international allies, and it was more than willing to turn a blind eye to the regime's crimes against humanity. In committing this very high-profile assassination on U.S. soil and killing a U.S. citizen in the process they made the regime's crimes impossible to ignore. Townley was successfully extradited to stand trial in the United States, where he went into witness protection. The assassination was too closely tied to the Dina for any reasonable denial. The CIA faced tough questions about their role in either supporting or tacitly allowing the assassination to take place, and this also remains a somewhat open question. At the very least, the CIA was aware of the connection between Townley and the Dina and the assassination immediately after the bombing, and failed to inform U.S. investigators about the link, and instead actively propagated a theory that Latelier had been assassinated by a group of Marxists. Later de- declassified documents show the CIA attempting to plan for how the CIA and Pinochet could distance themselves from the bombing if proof was discovered linking the bombing to the Dina. Now, of course, that proof was discovered, and along with Townley's gripping testimony, Contreras became a liability to Pinochet. The bombing soured the U.S. on its support for the regime, and Congress passed a ban on non-humanitarian aid to the regime. Pinochet, now convinced that Contreras' crimes were a liability and threatened his continued rule over Chile, disbanded the Dina in late 1977. He removed Contreras from his position, but he promoted him to general and founded a new, less autonomous intelligence agency called the CNI, or Central Nacional de Informaciones. Contreras, however, refused to go quietly. He threatened both Pinochet and the CIA that he would reveal documents proving their complicity in the plot if he was ever tried. Also, in 1977 and 78, three members of the foreign ministry who had helped to produce forged documents for Contreras' men died mysteriously, and those deaths were never investigated. So, while initially the new agency was in fact much less repressive than the Dina, though, of course, that's not to say not repressive, Contreras continued to exert influence over the CNI. He had no official role within it, But hundreds of former DINA agents had either left the CNI out of protest over Contreras' removal or stayed in order to report to Contreras on what was happening within the new agency. Before he left, Contreras secretly shipped thousands of files and dossiers to Europe that he could use as leverage against the regime and the new CNI. And this began a new phase in Chile's intelligence. As time went on, more and more people would be loosely associated with the Chilean intelligence sector, including current and former agents and officials of various ranks, who operated in a sort of shadow intelligence service, that centered not around the official orders given by the new constitutional-leaning director of the CNI, but around the still immensely powerful, if completely unofficial, will of Manuel Contreras. So that's the story of Manuel Contreras, who more or less single-handedly built a massive international espionage apparatus and continued well after his removal from that body to be a powerful force moving Chile ever forward into permanent police state. He also created an international organization of anti-communist terror and a series of international incidents that would sour Chile's political relations with the world community. So apart from the direct actions of Manuel Contreras, let's talk about where Chile stood on the world stage during the early years of the Pinochet regime. Up until the Letelier assassination, that's where the U.S. stood in Chile, an enthusiastic public supporter, providing the regime with immense financial boons that helped to reverse the shortages that had helped to bring down Allende. Throughout the early years of the regime, more and more countries cut diplomatic ties, stopped sending heads of state on official visits, and stop supporting Chile international negotiations. As long as ties with the U.S. remained strong, the regime maintained a degree of power on the international stage, but bilateral negotiations with almost all foreign powers suffered. Finally, as mentioned, the Letelier assassination was a turning point in U.S.-Chile relations, especially with Congress. Congress voted to reduce aid to Chile, and in January the following year, another huge blow came to Chilean relations with Washington, the beginning of the Carter administration. In 1977, Pinochet's foreign relations were looking very bleak. Human rights condemnations would be coming in fast, prompting his famous quote that his library was, quote, full of UN condemnations. So that's it for today. Today. Thank you for bearing with me over the hiatus. I plan to be back in two weeks with a new episode on the economy under Pinochet. And after that, we'll begin the process of removing Pinochet from power once and for all.